Welcome to the Emergence Sessions podcast. Sessions is a ministry of Emergence Church that exists to equip us to walk as disciples of Jesus by growing in knowledge and in our ability to live wisely in his world. Father, thank you for this evening and for this time you've given us to uh, look into Roman Catholicism. And uh, I pray, Father, that um, you would lead us into truth this evening, that you'd give us discerning hearts and discerning minds. Um, I thank you, Father, for everyone you brought out here. And I pray that everyone would learn something valuable, Father, that your spirit would be our teacher this evening. Um, We give this time to you. We ask also your blessing on the Job class and um, on Rick, who's leading it. And uh, we just thank you so much for giving us so much to be thankful for. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to say before I start that uh, last week I I made an off-the-cuff joke about ADD and OCD, and uh, nobody said anything or anything, but I know sometimes that can be kind of hurtful. So if I did hurt you, I'm sorry, forgive me, please. Uh, So that's what happens. Uh, I got in trouble once at the chapel. I don't know if you remember by something I said off the cuff once. Ask me about it, I'll tell you what it was. <laughs> yeah. You know it's bad when you're getting down and you see one of the elders like running up to you. Um, okay. Having said that, why don't we begin, begin like we began last week by standing together. And uh, this evening, we'll, we'll read together the words of the Constantinopolitan Creed. <clears throat> developed at the First Council of Constantinople. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, generated from the Father before all ages, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through whom all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and became flesh from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, too, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried. On the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. To his kingdom there will be no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets, and in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We await the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Notice there the usage of the term Catholic that we noted, I think, in one of the questions last week, which simply means according to the whole. So in these early usage, it means universal, the universal church, a worldwide church um, that is in line with apostolic doctrine. Okay, so uh, just to get our bearings as to where we are, uh, these are the, the ways we're setting out the, the weeks. So last week we looked at sola scriptura, 
tradition and authority. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the papacy. Next week, we'll be talking about salvation. Week four will be baptism and the Eucharist. Um, Week five will be Mary, saints, and icons. And week six will be purgatory and the canon of Scripture. And I just want to remind you all that uh, if you are asking a question tonight, again, this is being recorded, um, so you will be immemorialized if you do that. And uh, also, um, you know, try to keep it on the topic that we're talking about each night. Uh, but of course, don't feel, don't feel bad if you need to reach out to me. I definitely welcome your questions. So tonight, yeah, we're talking about the papacy. Uh, so let's just uh, define the papacy. What, do I, what, what is meant by this? So the word itself comes from uh, uh, one of the Greek words for father, papas, or the Latin papa, uh, meaning father. And um, the pope is also sometimes referred to as the Roman pontiff, which you'll see in some of the documents that we'll read tonight. Uh, That simply means high priest. Um, And uh, according to the pontifical yearbook, which is called Annuario Pontificio, there have been 266 popes throughout the history of the church. I think think 267, if you count Stephen II, who was actually uh, elected, and he died four days later before he could be installed. Okay, so let's consider, first of all, uh, what the Roman conception of the papacy is. How do they view the office of the Pope? And as always, we're going to go to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church um, for that. So, reading from paragraph 880, when Christ instituted the Twelve, of course, meaning the disciples slash apostles, He constituted them in the form of a college or permanent assembly, at the head of which he placed Peter, chosen from among them. Just as by the Lord's institution, St. Peter and the rest of the apostles constitute a single apostolic college, so in like fashion the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor, and the bishops, the successors of the apostles, are related with and united to one another. So let's... Consider some of the claims that are made here, okay? So first we see that Christ uh, set apart the apostles for a special foundational role in the church. So far, totally agree with that. Uh, Christ also made Peter the head of the apostles. Uh, Possibly true, we will look into that as well tonight. But here's the distinctively Roman Catholic part. The Roman pontiff, or the pope, is the successor of Peter. Uh, And the Roman Catholic bishops, that is, all bishops in communion with him, are the successors of the apostles. And as Peter was united with the college of the apostles, it's a very small, exclusive college, it's only 12 students, um, so is the Roman pontiff united in one college with the bishops. And... uh, So, now we see in here, also in this definition, you see the big S word that we started to look at last week, succession. So, how does the Roman Catholic Church define succession? So, I'm going to go now out of this section into paragraph 77, where we find, 
In order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left behind as their successors, uh, bishops. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. Indeed, the apostolic preaching, which is expressed in a special way in the inspired books, was to be preserved in a continuous line of succession until the end of time. I just noticed, I think I've mentioned here, that when you see, when I put paragraphs from the catechism up here, you see some of the words are in quotations and some aren't. It's because the the pieces that are in quotations are um, quoted from other church documents. So, for example, these two quotes are from De Verbum, which is part of Vatican II, as I mentioned last week. Um, So, what are some of the things we see here about succession? So we see that the the position of teaching authority that was endowed to the apostles, okay, so that same position of teaching authority is then transmitted to their successors. And those successors are understood to be the bishops of the churches. A a bishop is um, the head of a diocese, so the head of several churches. Um, Apostolic preaching, also notice here, okay, is distinct from what's contained in the inspired books, right? It says it was expressed in a special way in the inspired books, okay? But it's also preserved in the continual line of succession, okay? So again, you kind of have this idea of the deposit of faith, right? And the scriptures are a witness to that, but then so is what is taught uh, infallibly by the church, Uh, Also, paragraph 862 helps us out with this. Just as the office which the Lord confided to Peter alone as first of the apostles destined to be transmitted to his successors is a permanent one, so also endures the office which the apostles received of shepherding the church, a charge destined to be exercised without interruption by the sacred order of bishops. Hence, the church teaches that the bishops have, by divine institution, taken the place of the apostles as pastors of the church in such wise that whoever listens to them is listening to Christ, and whoever despises Christ and him uh, despises them despises Christ and him who sent them. So, this authority held by the bishops is likened to the authority held by the apostles, such that listening to them is likened to listening to God himself. Okay? So that's kind of the idea of succession in Rome's own words. Now let's continue to look at what is affirmed about the papacy. So 881, the Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. The office of binding and loosing, which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of Apostles, united to its head. The pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. The Pope, Bishop of Rome and Peter's successor, is perpetual is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ, which basically means the representative of Jesus on earth, 
and as pastor of the entire church, has full supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Okay, so the Pope has absolute power over the entire church when he chooses to use it under certain circumstances, as we'll see in a minute. And he can, under, he can exercise that power unhindered. And uh, here you kind of see some characteristically ambiguous wording that you get often in church documents that you feel like, well, what exactly does unhindered mean? And, you know, um, so it's, it's kind of tricky sometimes parsing exactly what this means. Um, uh, the next paragraph reads, The college or body of bishops has no authority unless united with the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor at its head. As such, this college has supreme and full authority over the universal church, but this power cannot be exercised without the agreement of the Roman pontiff. So the bishops, right, they too have similar supreme and full authority over the church, but you can't just go to a bishop and expect him to be exercising that. No, he can't, right? It's only when they are united and in agreement with the Pope. That has not always been the case throughout history, but uh, that is what is currently affirmed today. Um, in paragraph 884, the College of Bishops exercises power over the universal church in a solemn manner in an ecumenical council. So that's what we're talking about, all the bishops together, right? But there never is an ecumenical council which is not confirmed or at least recognized as such by Peter's successor. Uh, that at least recognized as such, of course, is, is in there because, um, uh, because um, uh, uh, the, the first seven ecumenical councils, the ones that are usually universally recognized, are actually not called by popes. They're called by the emperors. Um, Okay, so that's kind of like the basic nuts and bolts of how Roman Catholics conceive of the papacy. Um, but um, a lot of this is owing to a very significant moment in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, and that moment is the First Vatican Council, otherwise known as Vatican I. And so you could go throughout the history of the church and read papal bulls and things like that, and you can see a lot of popes exercising this kind of authority that we're, we just read about uh, in the past, but it was not declared as dogma that they could do so apart from the consent of the bishops, apart from an ecumenical council, until 1870 in the First Vatican Council. Um, and a, an excellent work on that, by the way, is by O'Malley on Vatican I. Um, and uh, that, that gives you some of the interesting kind of dynamics between the bishops who were in favor of doing what they did and the bishops who strongly felt against that. And um, uh, a lot of the history behind this we don't have time to get into, but it's kind of interesting that there was a lot of conflict as to whether or not to pass that, uh, some of the declarations of Vatican I, and if so, in what kind of wording that would satisfy the bishops who kind of wanted to put on the brakes a little bit. But this uh, council was convened by Pius IX, and it was basically, the, the reason for it is they wanted to respond for, to a bunch of controversies that were bubbling up there in the middle of the 19th century. So things like modernism and liberalism, 
pantheism, communism, and a bunch of other isms. And um, <clears throat> interestingly, the council itself only produced two dogmatic constitutions, De Filius and Pastor Eternus, um, because before they got to everything that was on the docket, uh, the Franco-Prussian War broke out, and Rome itself was captured by the Italian troops. So they had to, you know, that's kind of like the logic between we've got Vatican I and we've got Vatican II, because Vatican I, they wanted to say a lot more stuff about the church, the nature of the church, but just didn't get a, a chance to. Um, so the document that we're interested in here tonight is Pastor Aeternus. And this is uh, the, pretty much like uh, the, the very end of it, like the climax where it gets to where it's been going the whole time. And so here's what, um, here's what it says. And so, faithfully keeping to the tradition received from the beginning of the Christian faith, for the glory of God our Savior, for the exaltation of the Catholic religion, and for the salvation of Christian peoples, we, with the approval of the Sacred Council, teach and define that it is a dogma revealed by God. Okay, so that's how it, how it introduces this. Okay, so now notice that this, the claim being made here is that this is faithfully keeping to the tradition from the beginning of the Christian faith. Okay, remember I said frustratingly vague? Okay, does this mean that the following doctrine that is about to go up on the screen here has been explicitly held by the church ever since the apostles, right? Like that, like they, it's, it's not written down maybe in the Bible, but maybe the apostles, you know, told every bishop they appointed, like, by the way, the Pope is infallible when he does this, right? And then just everybody did that, right? Um, because many would say that that's demonstrably false. Um, or is a softer claim being made, right? Namely, that what is said is faithful to the tradition, though perhaps not explicitly taught by it. So there we might have something like Cardinal John Henry Newman's development of doctrine, right? It develops in a way that's faithful to the tradition, but it's no, we're not claiming that it was actually taught early on. And again, the, this is, these are the words that they adhere to, but it's, it's very difficult to tell. But here is the content of the Declaration, the, the dogma revealed by God. That the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when acting in the office of shepherd and teacher of all Christians, he defines, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the universal church, possesses, through the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter, the infallibility with which the divine Redeemer <clears throat> willed his church to be endowed in defining the doctrine concerning faith or morals. Another tricky thing about interpreting these documents is the proclivity to run on sentences, but maybe I shouldn't talk. Um, and that such definitions of the Roman pontiff are therefore irreformable of themselves, not because of the consent of the church. Notice that last phrase on there, okay? Um, but if anyone, God forbid, presumes to contradict this, our definition, 
let him be anathema. Of course, picking up Paul's language from Galatians of those who deny the gospel. A lot of church councils issue anathemas. So, what do we see here? We see that the Pope is blessed with infallibility, which means that he can define doctrine and that these doctrines are irreformable. They cannot be reversed. We also see, and this I think corrects a little bit of a, of a misconception, right? That the, the Pope can just, you know, um, anything that the Pope says, uh, you have to believe if you're a Catholic, right? No, the Pope can exercise his blessing of infallibility only under certain conditions. So number one, he has to be speaking ex cathedra, that is, from the chair, the chair of Peter. And he has to be acting in the office of shepherd and, all, and teacher of all Christians, right? Which is kind of like what it means to, to, to be in the chair of Peter, okay? Uh, so, and that indicates not just as the bishop of Rome, because the Pope is the bishop of Rome too. He's just also the bishop of the universal church. Um, also, he has to be speaking on a, on a doctrine of faith and morals, Okay, so he can't be like, man, the Tesla is the best car ever or something. And then you're like, oh, I got to believe that now. No, it's got to be faith and morals. Um, and he has to be saying that this doctrine is to be held by the universal church. So speaking ex cathedra has to be on faith and morals. And he has to make explicit that the doctrine is to be held by the universal church. So here's an example of like what this kind of wording looks like in a papal bull. And uh, so this, this is from Ineffabilis Deus, which is the papal bull that defined the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that is that Mary was conceived without original sin, which interestingly is by the same pope who convened Vatican I, okay, Pius IX. And, uh, but he actually did that before they defined this as dogma, although it's kind of like grandfathered into that. Um, because they, they, they view Pastor Aeternus as, as acknowledging what's always been the case or what's faithful to the tradition, right? So that's not a problem, the chronology here. But here's what like the kind of language would look like. To the honor of the holy and undivided Trinity, to the glory and distinction of the Virgin Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith and the increase of the Christian religion, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul and our own, we declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine that maintains, and then he gives the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Now, you might be interested in knowing how many times has a pope throughout history spoken ex cathedra in this way, right? And, and def infallibly defined dogma. Um, well, Catholics actually disagree on this. Like, Google it, you'll find lots of different answers to this, um, even among professional Catholic theologians and doctors of the church. Um, because indeed, you can look to a lot of papal uh, documents and see them using very, very high language. And then, lo and behold, for some reason, we don't hold this one is infallibly defined for some reason. But, um, but all Catholics agree that there are at least two, 
So the one is the one I just mentioned, Mary's Immaculate Conception. Mary was conceived without original sin in St. Anne's womb. And that, as I said, it also is, was done by Pope Pius IX in 1854 in the papal bull Ineffabilis Deus. And also, the second time, is also on Mary, and this one's in the 20th century. This is the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven. So that is that her body was taken up into heaven, uh, whether while she was still alive or after she had passed away, there is disagreement, but her physical body ascended into heaven. Um, and, that is the, and that was defined by Pius XII um, in 1950 in the Apostolic Constitution, Munificentissimus Deus. Um, have fun spelling that, note takers. Okay. Uh, both of those are going to be, of course, discussed in week five when we talk about Mary and the saints. Um, but yeah, uh, Catholics disagree. Like, uh, pretty, pretty viral video uh, on the uh, Candace Owens show. I don't know if you guys saw this between Candace Owens' husband, uh, who is a Catholic. Um, <clears throat> his name is George Farmer, and an evangelical Christian named Allie Beth Stuckey, which I thought was terrible interview. It was not good uh, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, Farmer affirms heresy in it, and then uh, by, by Catholic lights, and Stuckey just does not do a good job in defending a lot of Protestant, so it's just kind of like craziness. Um, but he thinks that there are seven Okay, and is pretty confident about that. So it kind of depends on who you ask. How many times have Catholic uh, uh, popes spoken ex cathedra? Okay, so that's basically the Catholic conception of the papacy. Does anybody have any questions about that? Oh, I guess we, yeah, grab that one. All right, we got one over here, Chuba. Hi. So um, I understand how, through tradition or whatever, the Pope has become, or each Pope has become, this um, elevated voice of God, or you know, the Bishop from Peter. But and we also, and I'm sure you're going to go through this in later uh, sessions, where the canon of the Bible was decided, the books. But when the Bible was decided, there are, there does seem to be history. There does seem to be um, people in the first, second, third century that can um, that are reliably kind of um, can, we can the yeah canon. we can yeah we can kind of uh, mm. rely on their that kind of line yeah but this whole thing about the Pope being direct descendant or the bishops being direct descendants of Peter mm -hmm. is there a through line or is there kind of any kind of historic record of that in a similar way that there are there is of yeah and I'm, I'm actually going to touch briefly on that towards the end this is not nearly going to be as much of a historical thing as we're going to be analyzing reasons and scriptures here uh just because of time but uh to make a long story short um uh, Irenaeus uh who I mentioned last week who is a early church father gives a succession of uh, bishops of Rome uh, between uh, uh, from Linus, who is mentioned in the New Testament, all the way to Eleutheros, I think that's how you say his name, 
in, um, in his own day. And so he gives names there. Now, there's some question marks that hang over that, um, but because Irenaeus, his books are called Against Heresies, right? There's five of them. And one of his key arguments in there is, okay, the Gnostics are using Scripture. Gnosticism is one of the early heresies uh, that kind of infected the church, okay? Uh, it's like basically like a belief that like this world is evil, uh, matter is evil, the goal is like to escape from matter, and actually between like the, like the, the highest God and us, there's a lot of these sub-deities and uh, the, these different eons and... Um, those who are in the know, who have the secret gnosis, the secret knowledge, can attain to this. And the God who created the world is not that God. He's a fallen God because this is not a fallen God, but a lesser God because he likes matter and he created the world material. It's all kind of weird, right? And they had their own, um, their own way of reading the scriptures. Um, and uh, so you couldn't, this became a real problem in the early church. And you couldn't like appeal to the, simply appeal to the scriptures because the Gnostics had their own ways of reading the scriptures. They were weird, but you couldn't, you know, this is weird is a hard argument sometimes when you're talking to a convinced person. And they also had their own succession of teachers. And so what Irenaeus does is he wants to say that, look, the, the, all of the mainstream churches can demonstrate a line of tradition, back, a line of succession back to the apostles. So that's kind of like the key nub of his argument. He's got other important arguments in there. So yeah, so he gives he gives um, he gives that. So yeah, like the Rome can it does have a list, but uh, it does have you know um, ancient attestation of a list of succession. But as I said, there's some question marks as to what exactly is implied by the by the list, and I'll highlight a pretty big one at the end of the talk. Right, but does it uh, does it in, in that Irenaeus or whoever, do they actually say that the successors of Peter have this kind of power? Oh, oh, okay. No, that, and that's the problem. Yeah, okay, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, th I think that that kind of is subsumed under... So I just gave like a five-minute answer to the question. Um, yeah, I think um, in a sense that's kind of subsumed under what I, what I uh, talked about last week where um, the notion of... Um, an inf like uh, in of a like an oral tradition that the successors of Peter um, have, uh, the successors of the apostles have, and they're able to pronounce things as dogmatic, right? That maybe not aren't even in scripture, right? Like that is not part of how anyone at this time, at least in the early, for earliest centuries of the church, are, are are doing things. That's not that's not what they're claiming. But they do use those things in like arguments. Um, a good example of this is the, I think it's pronounced Cordodesian uh, controversy. It's an early controversy of um, when Easter is supposed to be. So Jerusalem and the churches of Asia Minor celebrate um, on the Passover, which is the 14th of the month of Nisan, and it can be any day of the week. But in Rome, the Pope there, Anicetus, and then later, it was another guy, I forget his name, uh, want to, they, they insist that their tradition and their, their Rome, right, that their tradition says it has to be on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox, 
don't know where they got it from. That's how we date it today. Um, and just as like illustrate like that, the earliest example that we really have of of of, of a pope asserting authority over other churches is an overreach. He tries to excommunicate Jerusalem and the Asia Minor churches because of this. You're celebrating Easter on the wrong day. And Polycarp comes in and uh, who is not, he, he's the Bishop of Smyrna. And he basically, um, I don't want to say like overrules, but like is able to, um, uh, is able to not get him to do this. So there's like question there, did, did he, Think where does he think? Why does he think he has this kind of authority? You know, is Polycarp actually? You know, because Polycarp doesn't think that he's supposed to just submit to something that the Pope is declaring. Um, so that's a that's an interesting example. But that's really like the first time we see that, and I think that's in I want to say around like 170 A.D. or so. All right, we've got Harrison up here. Yeah, so I'm just looking at the first line, and I guess I'm not trying to give you bait, but I am just curious in a conversation mm -hmm. how this would go over. So that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks F ca ex cathedra, that is mm -hmm. when, he, when he is, or when acting in the office of shepherd and teacher of all Christians. So when is the pope not acting in the office of shepherd and teacher of all Christians? Yeah, um, okay, so like one example would be, I don't know if I'm going to get the details on this right, but so the current guy, uh, Pope Francis, um, was on a plane with a reporter, I think he was in South America, and uh, it was during the Zika virus, right, and that was affecting pregnant women, and the reporter asked him a question about the church's stance on abortion, and he definitely intoned that it would it it might be permissible in this case, if um, to which case you know like a lot of people obviously like freaked out about. But I think if I were a Roman Catholic theologian, I would definitely appeal to this. Right, he's speaking to a reporter who's asking him. He's not saying I am saying something that applies to every Catholic, you know, to everybody in 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 uh, communion with the Roman Catholic Church. So I think that would be a good example. Um, basically, like he has to very purposely be saying, I'm defining this as dogma, and everybody has to believe this or you're not part of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, just quick question regarding uh, just the different times where popes kind of spoke ex-cathedra. Uh, yeah. So... I don't know, it just feels like it's very clear cut, like what are the criteria for when a pope's speaking ex cathedra? So, and I mean, I'm curious, what are like the main points of contention amongst like Roman Catholic theologians when they're arguing that a certain pope may not have necessarily been making a declaration? Was it like a matter of documentation or was there specific, um, issues regarding what they were saying that they were able to poke holes in because of like this kind of, you know, infallibility that is associated with it. If mm. like all the, you know, um, boxes are checked off, how how is there a lot of room for debate? 
Yeah. All right. I'll try to be a little quick on this, and some of this we'll touch on a little bit next week as well. But that's a very good question. Um, it, so, I mean, it could be a, for, for a variety of reasons. So, like, let's say the Pope says something and he uses language like this, but he's, it's clear that he's, like, addressing, say, a local controversy or something, right? Then it's like, well, he's really only speaking to the, what's going on here, so maybe not all Catholics' consciences are bound to this. I'm giving a little bit of a spoiler here for next week, but one of the areas in which I see this, like, extremely profoundly is in their doctrine of salvation. Because uh, for a very long time, popes in some extremely forceful way had declared that there is no salvation outside of the church. And even an ecumenical council, I believe it was First Lateran, right? That if you are not part of the Roman Catholic Church, you cannot be saved. And like you read the Council of Trent that deals with the Protestant Reformation, and they're anathematizing probably like half the things we would all believe about salvation, right? Um, and so the problem is, now, um, that, in it, that in itself is its own thing, but it becomes a problem for Roman Catholic doctrine in light of Vatican II. Because in Vatican II, we are actually, um, you know, not all on a highway to hell because we believe in faith apart from works or justification by faith. Right? or because we're not formally in the Roman Catholic Church. We are, um, you know, we're, we're brothers and sisters. Um, we don't gather in churches. These are ecclesial communities. The East is now a church. Um, uh, and, and so it's like, well, is there salvation in the Roman Catholic? And you get this idea of like people being invincibly ignorant, and so maybe they're saved. And so... There's a theological conflict here that Roman Catholics have to deal with because popes and councils have said very forcefully, no salvation outside the church. But now, if you're going to affirm Vatican II, you, and so you have to find a way around that. And so there might be different, some, some different strategies. They're um, probably not denying Vatican II, even though Vatican II doesn't define dogma. Probably that's not the way to go. But you'll, see, you'll hear things like... Um, well, they weren't aware of like Native American tribes who had never heard. At the time when these popes were speaking, everybody in the world had, um, had knows about the Catholic Church and is deciding whether or not to submit to her rule or not. So a lot of like context arguments and things like that to, to deal with uh, ex-cathedra statements or, and, and really dissecting the language and the circumstances to say, okay, uh, this doesn't meet this criteria that I personally have for what, what is a solemn de declaration and what isn't, you know, again, you're, you're, you're kind of uh, trying to, trying to mold very ambiguous language to make a point. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're saying that the Pope either spoke twice or seven times infallibly based on that definition. I don't have a number. I'm just saying that like what I, when I read Catholic sources, some of them say twice, but some of them say more than that. Okay. Yeah. So, but over the history of the Catholic Church, it wasn't a lot of times. Uh, yeah, it was. it's not okay. a lot of times. I don't know anybody who's like, 
200 times or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just want It's always just a handful. Make that clear. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that's not to say that councils have not spoken with that kind of authority, at that level of authority. It's the, the Pope on him on his own. Okay, let's, uh, oh, we got one more, Avery, over here, and then we'll, we'll pick back up. Um, so, if I understand correctly, uh, Ex-Cathedra was um, raised in the 19th century? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, um, I'm sure the language comes from a lot earlier. So... Regarding ex-cathedra, um, was there any particular influence that occurred when they installed that rule? Could, could you ask? Could was you there any particular influence that occurred when they installed that rule? In, like what kind of influence? What do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, okay, so like what would be the first thing that they did regarding ex-cathedra? Did they just utilize that right away? Or was there some reason that they came up with it? Or is there some context oh. where they came up with the idea? Um, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of reasons and... My my recollection of the specific historical details around Vatican I is a little foggy, uh, but I could say that um, there's basically like different movements within Catholicism of the time that preceded it. So, for example, Gallicanism, which was very popular in France, um, was um, not a big fan of of papal authority, at least not without ecumenical councils and things like that and like they're producing their own documents and then you have what's called the ultramontane beyond the the mountains beyond the alps view and um uh, a party who is like no we need to do something about this we need to do something about the fact that you know we've got like um uh, all these these uh, like we've got they're dealing with like enlightenment thinkers and stuff like that and we need to grant um, the authority of the Pope to, to be able to speak and have Catholics respect what he says. Um, and so that's kind of, uh, at least in my reading, that's kind of like the dynamic behind that. Um, yeah, and there's, but, but yeah, like there's, there's, there's heated debates, but the, ma the major objection to it, at least in terms of um, the bishops and like the, the heavy-hitting theologians of the church, would be represented in a, like um, a one of one of the theologians is named Dolinger, and um, you know his is historical, and he actually ends up getting excommunicated from the church because he's like, I do not see this is this is not historical. How are we claiming that it is? This is what um, if we're going to make an argument that this is what's been believed throughout the, the church ages and that this is faithful to tradition. It's not, and I'd rather be excommunicated than, and he's like 80 when he says this, um, I'd rather be excommunicated than acknowledge this. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of, but again, I, I kind of, uh, I'm, I'm giving you like what I remember from reading of it several months ago. Okay, that's very great. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, let's continue on. Thanks, Walt. Um, <clears throat> okay, so here is um, uh, what I would say, and judge, judge for yourself, the evidential bar then that is required to substantiate the Roman papacy. Okay, so, <clears throat> and, and uh, what I mean by this is 
the, the, what is required of papal authority is to be demonstrated and not merely assumed. Okay? So these are the things that, um, that need to be substantiated with evidence. Number one, that Peter is designated by Christ to be the head, of, to be the head apostle uh, or the head of the church in the New Testament. Okay, number two, that Peter's unique authority as an apostle is transmitted to his successors. And number three, that the exclusive successors to Peter's unique apostolic office are the subsequent bishops of Rome. And we're going to spend a lot of time on the first one, because I think that was the one that really you know, has the most detail behind it. And the second two will be a little bit briefer. So if you're looking at how much time I'm spending explaining the first one and you're starting to worry, don't worry, okay? Um, <clears throat> and now to this, I would say, you know, if, if you find this reasonable, okay, when you're thinking through these things or perhaps engaging in talks about this, okay, this is the target I would say to keep your eye on, okay? This, uh, the, the subject, this is the kind of thing where you don't change the subject, um, no, these are the evidential bars that must be met in order for this to be a cred- in order for these doctrines to be credible. Okay, um, and the, because oftentimes it'll you know the conversation will veer into other things, or you know a book you're reading or video you're watching or something will will veer into other topics without really meeting this evidential bar. But this is what really does need to be shown if the Roman claims uh, undergirding the papacy are to be accepted. So let's look at the first bar. Peter is designated by Christ to be the head apostle or the head of the church in the New Testament. So this, of course, is based primarily on what Jesus says to him in Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and the Greek for that name is Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you, and this is in Greek a singular you, just you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you, singular, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, so Peter, right, confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. Just a word on this. This is uh, an insight that that should not be minimized, but probably shouldn't be exaggerated too, right? Like in Matthew, we do have other people pretty much confessing this of Jesus, um, so when Jesus enters the, the um, Jerusalem, the crowd is calling out, Hosanna uh, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, right? 
It's blessed to the son of David. Uh, that, that is the Christ. And even the centurion at Jesus' death, truly this was the son of God. Um, but that is basically, essentially, the confession that Jesus makes, or that Peter makes, that um, spurs Jesus to make these comments about him. So first he says, you are Peter, okay? which in Greek is the word petros, which does mean rock. It's a rarer word for rock than petra, but it is, uh, it is a word for rock. Um, and just so, you, in case you don't know how, how like, uh, his name kind of works in the New Testament, Jesus is probably speaking to him in Aramaic, and indeed we know from the New Testament that Peter is uh, sometimes called by the Aramaic name that Jesus is calling him here, which is Kepha. Okay? In Greek, it's Kephas. Um, this is a Kephas is a pretty common first century name in Palestine. It's not like super popular, but it's not unheard of. Although Petros is virtually unheard of. Uh, but yeah, so you get it. So G Jesus calls him Kepha, and the Greek way of translating it is into Petros. Um, when we call him Peter, so we're, we're following the Greek, render, uh, the Greek rendering of it. Peter, Petros. He's called Peter by all of the gospel writers, including Luke in Acts. And this is how he self-identifies in his two New Testament letters, as in Greek, Petros. Paul alone in the New Testament commonly refers to him as Kepha or Cephas and expects even the Gentiles in his churches to know whom he's talking about, right? So Paul comes speaking a language that's mainly used among Jews, and he's using that So both were known designations of Peter in the early church. However, twice in Galatians, Paul calls him Petros, but everywhere else he calls him Kepha. Um, it's sometimes argued that Peter's name change here is evidence that Jesus is giving Peter special commissioning. Doesn't stand or fall on that insight, right? But if you think about it, Abram's name is changed to Abraham in Genesis 17, when the Abrahamic covenant is being significantly expanded. One might also think of Sarah's name changed, right? From Sarai to Sarah, or Jacob's name changed to Israel, right? Significant turning points and a new commissioning, a new challenge of who to be when you receive a new name. But while it may or may not be true that Peter is receiving a commissioning here, we'll look at that in a second, one thing is clear, the name change has nothing to do with it and is not evidence for this. Uh, for the simple reason that Jesus had already changed Simon Bar-Jonah's name to Peter years earlier. So in, in John 1.42, for all we know, the first time that they meet, um, Jesus says to Peter, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. It's also sometimes argued that the Greek word Petros, Peter's name in Greek, means small stone. So this is a common Protestant argument that is unconvincing. Uh, perhaps to make a, 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 uh, the argument that he's different from Petra. Okay, so you are Petros, but on, uh, uh, which is, which is a, a, you're a little stone, but on this Petra, this big stone, I'm going to build my church. Okay, um, so obviously the, 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 the implication being that that, that Peter is distinct from the rock. So the rock 
that Jesus is going to build a church on is something other than Peter himself. Okay, you see how this is a Protestant argument. Um, however, this is probably false because Kepha, the name Jesus gave to him in Aramaic, from which Petros is simply a translation, actually means does mean massive rock in a lot of locations. Um, so it's not really a problem there. Uh, plus, we'll talk about additional reasons why the difference in names there are unconvincing. So, but let's kind of like dive right into it. On this Petra, I will build my church. On this Petra, I will build my church. So the big question, who or what is the rock? Peter? Peter's confession? Or maybe Jesus himself? Or maybe if you're really chicken, some combination of them. <laughs> okay. Um, so, first let me clarify the difference in the endings. In Greek, os is a masculine ending, and a is a feminine ending. So the difference for the, 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 the different, the reason for the difference, okay, which I think kind of solves, you know, really helps us, is Jesus differentiating between Peter and the rock. I think it really says, no, I, it doesn't look like he's differentiating them, at least not on the basis of the words that are used. Because he wants to, he names him, uh, he names him Kepha. Jesus says Kepha. So Matthew writing his gospel in Greek is like, well, do I give Peter or, or you know, whoever coins his name in Greek, uh, do I give Peter a, a girl's name, <laughs> right? Uh, no, it's just a masculinized form of, of Petros. Um, on the other hand, while we, so, so it appears that the rock, Peter, is the same as the rock that Jesus will build the church on. On the other hand, um, maybe we can't be that confident about that because we can know the underlying Aramaic in Jesus' first clause, you are kepha, okay? Uh, we don't know for sure what the Aramaic word he used was in the second clause. On this rock, I will build my church, right? We don't know that that was also kepha. Um, of course, if, if it was, that would make the identification of Peter as stronger, but we have no way of really knowing that. And there are actually several different Aramaic terms in use in the first century that do mean rock that he could have used, like galal or tenar. Um, so <clears throat> we don't really know for sure what Jesus' Aramaic was, and sometimes that will be appealed to by either side of this debate, and that's just an unwise way to argue. Um, so maybe, maybe it means it's his confession, okay, um, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and it's that confession, that's the rock I'm going to build my church on. Now, I think that that reading is plausible. I give that a possible. And it's kind of interesting that there's a lot of ink, obviously, that's been spilled on this, but it's kind of usually just which one sounds sillier to the interpreter. Like, there's not, like, a really rigorous way to make one point or the other. So, like, this reading is plausible, and, and you could kind of, like, convey Jesus' meaning by intonating it in a certain way, okay? So, you are Petros, but on this Petra, I will build my church, right? So, yeah, you're a Petra, 
uh, Petros, but on this Petra, I will build my church. It, you know, that, that would be the idea. And I don't see anything inherently implausible in that. There are a lot of evangelical scholars or Protestant scholars, right, actually will say, nope, no way that's it. I actually think it's, it's, it's quite possible. Um, what about the idea that the rock is Jesus? That one, I think, is kind of highly implausible um, because that would have been a really awkward way to word that, right? Like Jesus would have been like, you are Peter, but on this rock, I will build my church, right? Like there's a lot of easier, more clear ways to say, if Jesus is trying to be clear about that, he's certainly not doing a good job of it. Um, So what about the rock being Peter? Well, I think that that reading too is also highly plausible. You are Petros, and on this Petra that you are, I will build my church. And um, in fact, I think kind of the thing that tips the scales a little bit in my mind towards this is that the very next thing that Jesus does is he gives Peter the the keys to the kingdom of heaven, right? So that makes a lot of sense. On you, I'm going to build this church. And by the way, here are the keys, okay? The question, however, is, uh, well, one question then is, does this passage then, what Jesus is saying here, give Peter an infallible teaching office? Which is a little bit of a weird question to ask, right? Because the, clearly the apostles, the apostles did have an infallible teaching office under their ministry, right? What they wrote, what they said, was to be received, as Paul says, as it really was the word of God. But I don't think that this passage gives it to it, okay? Um, uh, gives us to him. Um, none of the language here seems to mean that. So, uh, the gates of Hades, for example, will not prevail against it. Okay. Sometimes the point is like, oh, the, you know, uh, Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and so you know, obviously, um, obviously, he's giving him an infallible teaching office. No, the gates of Hades is a pretty common expression, both in biblical and extra biblical literature, and it simply is talking talks about death. So the idea here is just simply like the church will not die. And you see this in the Old Testament. Uh, I got a bunch of references here. Um, uh, let me see a, like a really obvious one. Um, okay. Um, uh, this is, well, this is an extra biblical one. Wisdom of Solomon. Not, not if you like the Apocrypha, but... Uh, um, for you, wisdom of Solomon sixteen thirteen. For you have the power of life and death. You lead down to the gates of Hades and bring back up again. Okay. Um, or if you want something from the Bible, um, take a look at Psalm nine thirteen. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction and those who hate me, from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Okay. There's a bunch of other passages, Job 17, 13 through 16, Job 38, 17 through 18, Psalm 107, 17, Psalm 107, 17 through 18, um, Isaiah 38, 10 through 11. All these places where whatever it means, it does not mean you're going to make sure that I'm never wrong, right? You're ensuring me of, infallible, of infallibility. No, it's always I'm not going to die, okay? Um, so that phrase, very, pretty much, I don't see any way it could be a claim of infallibility. 
unless you want to say like by extension, well, if the church is going to survive, it has to have right, a perpetual infallible teaching office. Uh, but that's not an argument from this text. That's an, arg that's an extension. Okay. Um, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. How about that? Okay. Well, note that verse 19 is directed to Peter alone. Okay. Uh, the one with keys, at the very least, we could say, has the authority to admit or to deny entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Um, and so this idea of admitting or denying entrance, think of the way that keys work when they're mentioned in Scripture, uh, metaphorically. Luke 11.52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Um, Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 3.7, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Uh, in Revelation 9, 1-11, through 11, you've got this angel with keys, a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opens it up, and out comes mighty locusts, right? He's got the power to let them out. Uh, finally, in Revelation 20, 1-3, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand, the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So it really sounds like if the image of keys here means what it does throughout the rest of Scripture, and those are all of their metaphorical uses in Scripture, the only other mention of a key in Scripture is when, uh, uh, is when Eglon, the, the uh, uh, Moabite king, is uh, relieving himself, and they have the key in the book of Judges. It's a fun story. You should, uh, uh, and they can't get in, and Ehud is killing him. Um, yeah, you know, I, I like anything that's got scatological humor to some extent, so... Um. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, like that's, that's kind of how it's, it's you're letting in or you're letting out, okay? And, and that's given to Peter here. Um, now, it's also important to note that this is probably an, an allusion to Isaiah 22, 22, okay? Now, I'm, I mention this because this has actually become a very popular argument in favor of the papacy, um, uh, particularly among... among um, Catholic apologists. Um, Swan Sona is the guy who has kind of championed this in recent days. So let's just take a look at this for a minute. So Isaiah 20, in Isaiah 22, um, okay, so you've got this office in ancient Israel, this political office. And if you listen to Journey Through Scripture, you've heard about it a bunch of times. Uh, it's called Asher al-Habayit. It's actually a really funky turn of phrase because if you know Hebrew, Asher, it means, it simply means who is over the household. Like you wouldn't know it's an office if you weren't like kind of like if, you, if, if someone didn't tell you. But there's a bunch of guys who are called, said to occupy the position of, of who was over the household. Like uh, for example, Obadiah who hides all the prophets in the cave from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Right? And Elijah meets him, and he's like, doesn't trust Elijah to tell him where he's going to be and everything. He's Obadiah Asher al-Habayat. 
Okay. Now, in Isaiah's day, during the reign of King Hezekiah, he, uh, the, the guy who was Asher al-Habayat initially is a guy named Shebna. Uh, Shebna, as far as we could tell, is, is demoted to, um, uh, in his position, I want to say to a, no, I, I forget what his position is demoted to. But uh, so he initially is Shebna Asher al-Habayat, who is over the household. But uh, apparently, God is not too happy with Shebna's administration. And so he says this. He says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, of the, son of, uh, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and, will commit to, to your, and I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to, to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Notice the similar concepts there to what Jesus says in Matthew 16, right? Here's the kingdom. You will bind and none shall lose. You shall loose and none shall open, okay? Um, so it's very likely an illusion here. Although we also have seen that this is applied to Jesus in, in Revelation 3. It says, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, this Eliakim, um, uh, son of Hilkiah, who is now going to be Asher al-Habayat, he who is over the household. Um, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons, in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the, the Lord, for Yahweh, has spoken. Okay, so again, as I said, Jesus is definitely referred to in this way as the one who has the key of the house. But here it's given to this guy, Eliakim. And um, essentially the argument is that this is like, a, a, this is a type of the Roman papacy, okay? That a guy with the key of the house of David, a key of the kingdom of God, right, is given it. And, um, and, and, and this supposedly provides some evidence for the papacy. Now, uh, I could say a lot about this, but um, uh, one of the problems with a lot of Roman Catholic interpretation of the Bible, and we see this, we will see this also with the doctrines about Mary, is appeal to typology as evidence for doctrines, right? Like if something's not taught anywhere else, if you can find what you think is a type, okay, then that is actual evidence for a doctrine as opposed to just like maybe additional support for it or a way to speak of it. Okay. Now, in case you're not sure what that means, typology, it basically means like a God-ordained correspondence between one thing, like in the Old Testament, and something in the New. That's basically what typology is. So Adam is a type of Christ in that he made a decision. He did something that affected all who were under his headship, whereas Christ does something that affects something that's all, for all that are under his headship. Also, Melchizedek is called a type of Christ uh, in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Um, the problem with this is, is that it's very, very um, 
it's, it's very, very liable to subjectivity. Not in the sense that you can't say there's some kind of correspondence here, right? Because the open and no one will shut, shut and no one will open, uh, with a key present to the kingdom, and then a key's present to the kingdom in Matthew 16, right? And you're, you're binding and no one can loosen, loosen and nobody... Uh, you can make a very good case for that. The problem is that you can't really conclude many specifics from that because there's no way to really know what aspects of Isaiah 22 are going to be carried over into Peter's ministry. So, like, it will even be argued that, well, Asher al-Habayat was a successive ministry, right? After Eliakim, he gave it to someone else who had the same authority as he did. Don't you see? And so, popes do that, okay? Um, but, like, I would ask, you know, again, you, it's hard to know. You, there's no control as to what aspects of this are carried over into the, the, type in, the, um, the type in the New Testament or the antitype, okay? For example, would we carry over verse 25 to then? Because that kind of sounds to me that the papacy will fail, okay? In that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place. Who's the peg? Who's the peg in verse 23? Eliakim, right? Will give way and will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for Yahweh has spoken, right? If we're going to be using types here and making arguments from them, that, that, you see what the problem is? Like, just look at the way that the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Often it's in ways that are, that are, that are creative and unpredictable, okay? I don't say false, but they're not things that would be readily apparent to us. So like, for example, Hosea 2.23 and 1.10 in Romans 9.25, okay? Hosea is talking about the Jewish people, actually the northern kingdom of Israel, being rejected by the Lord, but then God promises to have mercy on them, right? And Hosea says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Paul quotes that in Romans 9.25. But he's quoting it to show that Israel is cut off and the Gentiles are incorporated. You see what I mean? Like Creative and unexpected ways. Now, if we could talk. I could tell you what I think is going on there. I don't think that Paul is you know, got a foul ball here or anything, but it's, it's very difficult to see how type, you know, to, to know in advance how types actually work out. Or think of Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, okay? It's talking, it, it quotes Psalm 8 ex extensively, right? Like you made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Now you read Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is about human beings, humanity, Right? But he's saying that this refers to Jesus and talks about him becoming a little lower than the angels and then crowned with dignity and honor. I didn't know that Psalm 8 was about Jesus, you know? And again, I'd be happy to discuss what I think is going on there. But my point is that you can't just say I have a correspondence in one piece of scripture and so I'm going to selectively make a case for build a doctrine over it, build a support for a doctrine that I can't show otherwise from any clear passage in the Bible. I'm going to make a typological argument to get across the line. You see why that's a problem. Okay, so that's the, the, the keys of the kingdom. Nevertheless, I do think that that is granting to Peter, I would say, it's granting to Peter the authority to 
to, to, to have a say in who is and who is not in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Further, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Okay? And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The idea that priests have the power to absolve sin or that certain kinds of sin can be forgiven by them is completely absent elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay? And so if you're going to get it, you're going to have to get it from here. You might be able to get it from John 20 also. Okay? But in neither of them is it clearly spelling that out. They're both very tricky passages. Um, so given the importance that such a doctrine would have for all Christians everywhere, this silence is kind of unacceptable, right? And, it's a, and the silence is the kind of argument from silence that actually works as a forceful argument against it, right? Like, if, if your salvation was dependent on someone having the power to absolve sin, you would think it would be clearly mentioned in the New Testament clearer than this. Um, now, in Jewish tradition... The concepts of binding and loosing were in use, so that this is language apparently from like Jewish rabbinical, the Jewish rabbinical world. And it meant something like defining acceptable conduct. And it's sometimes argued with little evidence from actual Talmudic texts. I see the Jewish encyclopedia um, cited a lot, but I don't really see a lot of texts. Uh, but it sometimes is asserted that this Jewish conception of binding and loosing carried with it the prerogative to exercise divine authority. So the idea would be when Jesus says you're going to bind and loose, he's going to say, Peter, you're, he's saying, Peter, you're going to demonstrate divine authority. But, um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing about these arguments for Peter's infallibility based on this. No one disagrees that Peter himself possessed that kind of authority, right? If you're a Christian... You believe that Peter was an apostle, and you believe that he possessed infallibility. And so therefore, the question of whether or not this authority belongs to popes can't be answered apart from answering the second evidential bar. That is, that Peter's unique authority as an apostle is transferred to his successors, because everybody agrees that Peter's got it. And if that bar is met, then the, the power does belong to popes, if it isn't, then we have no reason to think that it is. The other thing that I'd like to mention uh, is that Matthew 18, in giving the procedure for calling someone to repentance, right? You know, and if he repents, you've won your brother. That passage actually gives the power to bind and loose to all of the apostles. Uh, Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, here, it kind of it seems to have to do with determining the spiritual state of someone who has or hasn't repented. But, um, uh, but, and sometimes it'll be argued that because Jesus says this in Matthew 18 to all of the apostles, um, that um, Peter actually has equal authority, and so he's not, he's not above the other apostles in any way. Um, however, that doesn't necessarily follow since chapter 16, the power and binding and loosing um, seems to be connected uh, to the keys that he alone is given. Um, so I just want to quote, <clears throat> to kind of wrap up this conversation on Matthew 16, I want to quote um, R.T. France, who's got an excellent commentary on Matthew. He says, There is nothing in this passage about any successors to Peter. And he says this after arguing that Peter is the rock, 
He is given the power to uh, admit people or not admit people into the kingdom of heaven, okay? And he's given the power of binding and loosing, and that's at very least a very strong authority, although he doesn't go with infallibility, right? But he still says there's nothing in this passage about any successors to Peter. It is Simon Peter himself in his historical role who is the foundation rock. Any link between the personal role of Peter and subsequent papacy is a matter of later ecclesiology, that is like church doctrine, not of exegesis of the passage. Um, now, sometimes it's also, sometimes we also see the, another, some of the other places that, um, you know, Petrine authority is argued for is, for example, in the upper room with Jesus, okay? And this is taken from, uh, this is a translation of Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, uh, taken from the MWT, which is a new translation called the My Wooden Translation. But it says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded you, okay, so, and that, there's a plural. Satan demanded all of you apostles, all, or all of you disciples, they're disciples then, right? For the purpose of sifting as wheat. But I have prayed for you, just you, Peter, singular, that your faith might not fall, and you, singular, when you have turned, strengthen your, again, singular brothers. So you see the thing here, right? They're all going to fall, uh, but Jesus is explicitly praying for Peter because he wants Peter explicitly to be the strengthener of his brothers. Um, more, um, <clears throat> however, the following observations of this, I think, need to temper those considerations. Uh, no, uh, even if this speaks to Peter's unique role as a leader of the Twelve, and I have no problem saying that it does, we must be mindful of the second bar. The passage says nothing about succession. And secondly, Jesus' focus on Peter can be accounted for by what? Is there anything that's about to happen okay, that, that would cause Jesus to zero in on Peter? By his impending betrayal of Jesus that that was a uniquely bad betrayal among all the, all the apostles. Indeed, Peter goes on to declare his undying allegiance to Christ, and Jesus answers him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. He says that right after he says this thing about Satan wants to sift you all like wheat, but you strengthen your brothers. The same thing happens in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, right? Remember what happens. Peter also denies Jesus there, and uh, Jesus appears to them at the Sea of Galilee, and after he's kind of made himself known to him, he has a conversation with Peter, okay? And um, just like in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, it's strengthen your brothers in the aftermath of you failing me, now he's given a special commission to feed or tend Jesus's lambs slash sheep, Okay? But also, as with Luke 22, this also does not indicate succession, and it probably corresponds to Peter's failure, and even more obviously here than there. Because notice, how many times does Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times does Jesus ask him, do you love me, and then tells him to feed or tend to his sheep or lambs? Three. Okay. Now, going out, branching out into the New Testament church, we see that Peter has an authority of at least being a first among equals. Now, at times, you see Peter 
on equal footing to the other apostles. So Peter is accountable to the Jerusalem church. So after the thing with Cornelius, when he eats with Gentiles, he comes back and they, con- they call him out on it. Uh, Paul, as was mentioned last week, rebukes him and criticizes him in Galatians 2, 11-14 for not walking in step with the gospel. Uh, when the apostles are spoken of as the foundation of the church, no mention, special mention is made of Peter. Okay, uh, Ephesians 2.20, where it talks about us being strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints now and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right? It's all the apostles that were built on. And then when the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven in Revelation 21.14, on the wall of the city, uh, or the wall of the city, we're told, had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of all 12 of the apostles of the Lamb. Okay. Nevertheless, in light of these observations, a role of leader or spokesperson for Peter is often discernible. So in Matthew's list of 12 disciples, for example, the way he words it is, first, Simon, who is called Peter, and all of the lists begin with, with Peter, okay? and then he ends it with Judas, Matthew does. And we probably shouldn't make too much of the order of all the names, like as if Andrew is therefore greater than James, right? But it's hard to miss the fact that Peter comes first and is said to be first, and that Judas comes last. In the Gospels, Peter is mentioned far more than any of the other apostles, so the spotlight is on him more often. They want us to pay more attention to him. Uh, Peter also takes the, the initiative in a lot of the early big developments in Acts. So he's the one who steps up when it's time to replace uh, Judas with Matthias. Um, He is the one to first proclaim the post-resurrection gospel on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. He is the head of the early activity in and around the temple. He is the one who issues the condemnation on Ananias and Sapphira. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound on in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He and John go first to the Samaritans. Okay, remember, in Jerusalem, Samaritan, Samaria, end of the earth, right? He preaches in Jerusalem. He goes to the Samaritans. And then guess who goes first to the Gentiles, the ends of the earth? Peter, Cornelius, chapter 10. Okay. However, after that, it's kind of unclear if he continues to fulfill a role of le- as leader of the church. Because you get to there, and one could say that perhaps his role as the rock or foundation of the church now has been accomplished. Um, it is James who presides over the Jerusalem council where Peter speaks, okay? But, uh, but, but James is the one who says, therefore, it is my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That's when they're dealing with the question of, do we make Gentile churches circumcise their males? Uh, also, you know, you read Acts. From then on, Paul is pretty much the exclusive, um, uh, the guy who now has the spotlight on him. And beyond that, in the New Testament, Peter only appears again in his two letters, being rebuked by Paul in Galatians and being named a couple times in 1 Corinthians as an example for them. Like, you know, aren't we allowed to take on long a believing wife like Cephas and the other apostles? Okay? So that's the first bar, which I said is going to be way longer than the other two. Okay? 
And, uh, and, but, but, but honestly, I would say of the first bar, right, that Peter is the head of the church in the New Testament, I think there's a pretty good, I think on balance, in my opinion at least, and this is a bit objective, I would say, yeah, it kind of looks like he is. Um, but also you can make a pretty good case that once you're past Acts 10, uh, that maybe his role as you know, the, the, the initial rock, the initial foundation rock is, is, is finished. Um, but what about bar two? And I've alluded to this as a problem, right, for the doctrine of papal supremacy. That Peter's unique authority as an apostle is then transmitted to his successors. Now, last week we examined the support for the notion of the concept of apostolic succession, just to, you know, refresh your memories. If by succession we mean that the apostles appointed leaders of the church to teach and lead according to the content of the scriptures and to the tradition they handed down, then this is exact, then this is absolutely a concept that is warranted by biblical evidence and from the writings of the early church fathers. We also saw that the content of this tradition was entirely based in scripture every time they give it to us. However, in no New Testament passages are we told um, of an infallible teaching office that would be passed on to these successors. We examined Matthew 28, John 14, alongside John 16, as well as Matthew 16, which we also examined tonight. There is also no evidence that the notion of a perpetual infallible teaching office uh, was, was known or thought of in the early fathers. Now, if this is true, then it follows that there is no basis for asserting that Peter's successors have an infallible teaching office, okay? If it's not there in general, why would it be there for just Peter if there's no evidence for it, right? Um, the concept of succession in the New Testament and in the early fathers then seems to be very different than its use by the Roman Catholic Church. Also consider the implications of such a claim, Okay the claim that Peter's successors inherited his infallible authority. So first of all, this would mean that after Peter's death, his successor, which Irenaeus names as Linus, would have had superior authority to at least one living apostle, okay, who would be John for sure. But it's also possible for Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, because we have no reliable information regarding any of their fates. And if you're interested in diving deeper into that, I recommend Sean McDowell's work. His dissertation uh, dealt with this directly. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit of an odd scenario. Again, odd is a subjective way to evaluate something, but and then finally, if all New Testament apostles had the authority to infallibly define doctrine, right, which we would say that of Matthew, we would say it of John, we would say it of Paul, okay, uh, we'd even say, uh, you know, uh, we, we would, of course, say it of Peter, right? Uh, if they all had that authority, this charism of infallibility, why is it only Peter's successor who holds it? Um, and I think it's worth asking then, what makes a church leader a true successor of an apostle? Is it being able to prove somehow uh, 
that you have been formally ordained through the sacrament of holy orders by someone else who was formerly ordained through the sacrament of holy orders, who was in turn ordained through holy orders, and so forth, until that succession reaches an actual apostle? Or is it rather that you teach what the apostles taught? Okay? If we ask, well, how do you know what the apostles actually taught? After all, not all who use the Bible as their sole infallible authority agree on teaching, right? What do we say to that? Well, there have always been those who misunderstand Scripture, right? In 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16, Peter acknowledges this of, of uh, readers of Paul's letter in his day, okay? But among those who follow the, role of sola, the rule of sola scriptura, there is remarkable agreement on the essentials of faith. Those things that were, and they're all things that were acknowledged in the early church's rule of faith, which we looked at last week. Might it be that God provides sufficient clarity on the things that are truly central and that it is not right to divide over things that are not central, let alone pronounce anathemas about them? Either, not central, either according to the Bible, by the way, or the rule of faith of the early church. What do we say about bar three? So I, bar one, I think we could probably meet. Bar two, I don't see any evidence for it, and I see some compelling reasons against it. Bar three, the exclusive successors to Peter's unique apostolic office are the subsequent bishops of Rome. Okay, And here I'm, I'm aware of the time, so I'll try to be a little bit brief about this. So a bishop, as I said, is defined as um, someone with the, uh, the, the, the title uh, of, a, of an ecclesial, it's a title of an ecclesial dignitary who possesses the fullness of the priesthood and rules a diocese as its chief pastor. So a diocese has churches under it, okay? That's what a bishop is. Um, I'm going to not do uh, 862 because we read that earlier. So that slide, uh, we could put it up. But I'm not going to read from it. Um, but what, this, uh, what this, is, this says about church structure is it's the idea of a threefold church structure, right? So you've got bishops, and then you've got um, uh, the elders, pastors, priests. Those are all supposed to be like synonymous. So if you wonder where priests are in the New Testament, Catholics would say, those are the elders or the pastors of the, of the New Testament. Um, and then they're over deacons. So it's a threefold structure, right? Um, uh, but what's the biblical evidence for that? Okay. Uh, and the, the, another way of, of calling that is you, sometimes it's called monoepiscopacy, where it's, it's a monarchical episcopate, where the, the bishop is the head single, and then you've got other elders slash priests under him. Um, well, there is a little bit of evidence for that, that the New Test that there was a monoepiscopacy, that the church was set up that way in the New Testament. So for example, one might say that the elders in Jerusalem, right, they held authority over the churches to the north, because when they have to decide about that thing with circumcision and keeping the law, they write a letter and expect it to be followed. But then again, the churches they wrote were in distant cities. This letter is coming with some serious apostolic authority too, right? The closest church was Antioch, which is like 80 miles from Jerusalem. And then the next closest church is in Asia Minor, like twice that far. So under no 
you know, under no one's conception of a diocese, is that a diocese? Um, sometimes you'll also read that like Titus is commissioned by Paul to appoint elders in every town, Titus 1.5, or that Timothy is charged with entrusting what he has heard and learned from Paul to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Um, and that's basically the New Testament evidence for monoepiscopacy. By way of contrast, the New Testament clearly uses the term overseer, which is episkopos, which is bishop, okay, and elder, which is presbyteros, interchangeably. So in other words, in the New Testament, overseer slash bishop seems to be interchangeable with elder, okay, pastor or priest if if you're using the Catholic language. As for the term shepherd, poimen, from which we get pastor, that's a function that the men do in this office do. So an elder or a bishop shepherds, pastors. This is why in our church we say pastors are elders, elders are pastors. So Paul tells, um, uh, says that he left Titus in Crete to appoint elders in every town, and then he says that an overseer must be above reproach, a bishop, an episkopos. Um, uh, in Acts 20, 28, Paul is meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. They're called elders in verse 17. And he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Notice the shepherd imagery there, pastor, right? In which the Holy Spirit made you overseers, you elders, you bishops, episcopoi, to shepherd the church of God. There's the pastor language which he obtained with his blood. You see, they're used interchangeably. Pastor, episkopos, presbyteros. Pastor, bishop, elder. Peter also says that it's the elder's job to shepherd the flock of God, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. And so in light of this, the terms pastor, elder, and overseer should be regarded all as referring to the same office. Uh, and this appears to still be the church structure by the beginning of the writing of First Clement, which I think is on the next slide. Um, yeah. Uh, so First Clement says, And thus preaching through countries and cities, they, the apostles, appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who should afterwards believe. Right? That makes a lot of sense if there are two offices in the church rather than three. Nor was this a new thing, since indeed many ages before it was written concerning the bishops, here we have it, get, here we have it now, and deacons. Um, For thus saith the scripture in a certain place, I will appoint their bishops in righteousness and their deacons in faith. So we get bishops and deacons here. And then in chapter 44... He says, for our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate, episcopes, those who have blamelessly and holily filled its duties. Blessed are those presbyters. Notice here, elder is exchangeable with those who are in the episcopate, who, having finished their course before now, have obtained a fruitful and perfect departure. For they have no fear lest anyone deprive them of the place now appointed to them. Okay, And now, just so you know what Clement's bona fides are, Irenaeus in it against heresies, uh, book 3, chapter 3, section 3, 
says that Clement, quote, had seen the apostles and met with them and still had the apostolic preaching in his ears and the tradition before his eyes. Now, in fairness, Irenaeus is also the one whom I mentioned gives us a succession of bishops of Rome, uh, of which Clement is the third. However, the primary evidence that uh, is Clement himself, who does not distinguish bishops from elders. So a probable scenario is that the church in Rome was small enough as to not have multiple churches, and that the mono-episcopacy there developed as the need arose, as it did in many cities, for city-wide leadership. Okay? It's not a bad thing that mono-episcopacy arose. Like, I don't think having bishops is like, oh, you're so unbiblical, right? It's, it's just significantly lessens the claim that the apostolic succession was transmitted to bishops. Um, now, related to this, I'll point out, it's sometimes uh, argued that Clement would write, uh, that, you know, Clement is writing first Clement to the Corinthians, right? And so clearly he thought that he had universal jurisdiction because he's, He's in Rome, right? He's Clement of Rome, and he's writing to the Corinthians. Um, however, other bishops early on were not shy about, about issuing instructions to faraway churches. Ignatius wrote letters to the Ephesians, Magnesians, the Tralians, the Romans, the Philadelphians, and the Smyrnans. And Polycarp wrote to the Philippians. Now, so where does the Roman papacy develop from? Let me just put it real quickly. Um, also in these writings, we, these early writings, um, both in Ignatius and Irenaeus, we see a very high regard for the Church of Rome. So Ignatius, for example, um, addresses the Roman Church, uh, beloved and enlightened by the will of the one who willed all things to exist according to the love of Jesus Christ our God, which the Roman Church also is preeminent in the place of the district of the Romans, worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of blessing, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy of sanctification, and preeminent over love, named after Christ, named after the Father. Irenaeus, likewise, when he addresses them, right, addresses the church that is the greatest, most ancient, and known to all, founded and set up by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, at Rome. So I think what's going on here is that giving Rome's prominence and the development of the mono-episcopacy throughout the empire, it's not surprising that the Bishop of Rome eventually gained prominence in the early centuries of the church and grew to what it has become. But, of course, that's a story for another evening. At this point, I just want to remind you, in closing, about the three bars that I initially set up. Peter is designated by Christ to be the head apostle or the head of the church in the New Testament. And we noted that the evidence to that for that is pretty good. And I think as Protestants, we can affirm that. What of the other two? Peter's unique authority as an apostle is transmitted to successors, and the exclusive successors to Peter's unique apostolic office are the authority are the subsequent bishops of Rome. I think that... Uh, those two are much less plausible, and I'm not sure I see a lot of compelling evidence for it. All right, as I've said a bunch of time, I'm aware that I took my sweet time tonight. And so I'll say, as I always say at about this time, uh, if you got a split, thank you for coming and thank you for being with us. Um, but for those of you who uh, 
maybe enjoy one another's company. I'd like to open it up for some questions. All right, Donna. I feel silly because... Well, how do you think I feel? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back to this word infallibility. What I've learned so far, I want to make sure I'm correct. Um, well, first I was wondering, could you define what it means? Like when you say Peter is infallible, mm -hmm. what does that mean? So it, it means that, I mean, in, in theological jargon, right, it means that under certain, uh, under certain conditions, what is taught is, uh, is without error, um, is completely true. So saying that the apostles had infallibility doesn't mean that everything they ever did or ever thought was true or ever said was true, right? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Peter go, comes to Antioch and decides to stop eating with, with Gentiles and, or, and, and Peter and Paul confronts him about it. Um, you know, I don't think so. But the idea is that it, under certain circumstances, the Holy Spirit endows them with, I think it's fair to speak of the charism of infallibility, of, of being what you say is true, and it is binding on the conscience of all Christians to believe it. Thank you so much. That I learned that. I thought they thought that the Pope was always right, no matter no, what he no, said. No, 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 <laughs> for sure. Uh, Pope is not always right, according to. Although you do, uh, although Roman Catholics do owe him submission of submission of will and religious obedience, something like that. Like if he says something, you are to submit to it, and assent is the the term that they use. So you can't just be like, the Pope just wrote something and he, he's wrong. You can't go and like tweet about it like some bishops these days are. Okay. Yeah. So this is my friend Michelle. It's her first time at Emergence. Oh, hey, and Michelle. she has a question. All right. But she watches on TV all the time. Nice. Um, the question was, we're talking about bishops. Now she, you were I raised was, Catholic. Yes. Here. Yes. No. I'm sorry. And she wants to know what happened to cardinals. Oh, so... Yeah, uh, I and mean, archbishops. Yeah, cardinals are, are archbishops. Uh, I'm not sure when the archbishops, archbishops, um, to be honest, um, arises. That's something that I'll actually have to look up. So uh, there, there's no at least at least in the uh, the earliest writings of the church. I'm talking about like first 200 years or so. I'm not aware of any mention of cardinals or archbishops. So that I'm actually not sure of. That's a good question and kind of stumps me. So, good job, Michelle. Yeah. No problem. Drew, edit that out. <laughs> Doug, I'm not sure if we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Probably. Right. Probably. Um, the, the thing that causes the split between the, the church and became the, the Protestant's biggest issue, things like indulgences, okay? Mm -hmm. Did the issue of infallibility of the Pope come up during that issue? Yes. Okay, so was that ex-cathedra issue or not? No, the Pope had not, no, well, if if your standard, well, that's the thing, are, are their standards today the same as they were in the 16th century would be a question. But uh, it did come up, um, and I, th you know, I think if I, I, I think that, you know, um, 
if something is believed by the whole Catholic Church, that also is binding on the conscience of Catholics. So I think simply by the way that popes had been regarded for a very long time was itself thought to be have the force of authority. But essentially what happens, so, the, so Luther writes the 95 Theses, and they're originally written not for the public, but as kind of like an agenda for things to be discussed with him between him and other scholars, okay? Um, those are pulled down, printed, okay, and, dis and distributed. And uh, they eventually get back to Leo X, and Leo starts sending uh, theologians out to Germany to bring Martin Luther to heel. And several of them were more gracious than others, but eventually uh, he's, he's uh, in the final one that he's before, okay, um, he is reminded, he is pushed to saying, are you saying that you believe these things from the scriptures, but the Pope says these things, are you saying that, the, that, the, that your understanding of the scriptures is higher than the Pope's authority, okay? And, bef and essentially, before you answer that, remember, about 100 years earlier, Jan Hus was saying very similar things, and he was burned at the stake for it. And at that point, Luther could have backed down when he, because you mentioned Jan Hus's name to someone who was on trial for heresy, and you know what's being implied. And Luther, at that point, by the grace of God, I would say, had the bravery to say, Ja, ich bin ein Hussite. And at that point, he's declared a heretic. Um, shortly after, he's excommunicated from the church and he's sent back home, right, with under safe conduct to be handed over to the civil authorities as a heretic, right, and killed. And, uh, but Frederick the Wise of Saxony hires some guys who don't even tell him where they're bringing him to, put a, to, to, to ambush him on the road, put a hood over his head, and they kidnap him and bring him to the castle of Marburg where he stays and begins, you know, continues his writing and stuff. Uh, but that's the only reason by, why Luther didn't end up being killed. But the, so the issue of disagreement with indulgences was not, um, was not like per se a disagreement with papal authority, but they kind of pushed it to where it became that. Because interestingly, the issue of indulgences is addressed in the Council of Trent. Like they kind of do agree with Luther at that point, uh, at the points he made about indulgences, or at least a lot of them, at least some of them, right? But but um, yeah, the, um, the issue became the reason he got excommunicated was because he said that the scriptures have a higher authority than, than the Pope does. Okay, everyone. Oh, yeah, Ed. So is it fair to say that both um, Catholics and non-Catholics, Christians, all Christians, Protestants, yeah, Protestants, yeah, agree that the Word of God, the Bible, is infallible. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, you read you read the Catechism section on Scripture, you would think it was pulled out of like, you know, like the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Maybe not quite as long-winded, but. Uh, yeah, Catholics absolutely believe that. 
The question is what happens when you have other authorities that are given similar status. All right, everyone. Well, I'm hanging around as usual, but thanks for being with me. Sorry that I stink at looking at a clock, but uh, you guys are all awesome. Thank you.